Hey, groovy dudes and dudettes out there in .NET land, it's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers. I'm your host in New London, Connecticut, Carl Franklin, and my guest on the phone today, Mark Dunn. Mark, where the hell are you? Hey, Carl. I'm in Montgomery, Alabama, my friend. How are you doing? What the heck are you doing there? I'm teaching a VB6 class for uh, Auburn University's Center for Advanced Technology. Yeah, you've been teaching some serious classes there recently, have you not? Yeah, I have. I uh, I have a nice agreement with them, so I'm I'm probably down here two weeks a month. Wow. And we uh, want to uh, extend a welcome back for you. We did last week's show, Sans Mark, and uh, we pulled it off. We managed to pull it off. As I told the listeners last time, we're um, we're getting our mobile on the road recording gear rig rig working. And uh, all set up, so by the time uh, next week rolls around, we should be able to, wherever we are, be able to record a show in full quality, and not have to, uh, not have to uh, have you on the phone or or whatever. Well, that's right. My wife said I got a package in the mail today that appeared to be electronic. So uh, that's it. I think we're going to be set. Did the dogs come and sniff it for uh, gunpowder and anthrax? Are you, you kidding? Know? Where I live. <laughs> So anyway, it's good to have you back, and and I got a few things to talk about here, if you don't mind. Um, some interesting things have been happening in the world of .NET since we last talked. I uh, got an email from a, a guy in my class, uh, Jair M. Dos Santos, who gave me a couple of links to products that allow you to compile IntelliSense into VB.NET components. Awesome. Yeah. And I knew there was a how-to out there, you know, to do it manually by creating your own XML files and this and that and stuff. But this is really, these are really the first two programs I've seen out there that automate that whole process for you. So, you know, C-sharp, hey, you know, it's, uh, that, you know, that's one less thing that I have to be jealous of C-sharp for. And, uh, well, anyway, we have the links to those products up on the website uh, this week. One of them is freeware, vb.doc. And the other one is called a VB.net XML Comments Creator, which is, uh, I guess, there's a limited version of it. Uh, and we, we seem to like VB dot, VBDoc a little bit better right now. Right, I took a look at VBDoc today. I thought that was uh, actually a cooler-looking product than the uh, shareware one. Yeah, absolutely. Also, uh, Scott Stanfield, who was uh, a guest on .NET Rocks earlier last year, um, has his company, as you know, Vertigo Software, does a lot of stuff for Microsoft, and, and they built several new projects for Microsoft that were launched at VS Live that are free, and I believe they uh, come with source code. I'm not sure about that, but I, I'm pretty sure they do. Um, one is Task Vision, which is a big WinForms app in VBNet. That shows off all kind of cool stuff and uh, data collision handling uses the data set diffgram idea to synchronize changes with a database on the back end. And uh, also there's a couple of ASP.NET starter kits that were built on iBuySpy. Uh, the time tracker, which is based on some internal code that they use, and uh, reports applications. It's sort of uh, uh, an advanced iBuySpy version. And also then there's one called Photobob www.photobob.net, which is, um, well, it says you just have to go see that. So just go check out photobob.net. And uh, very good stuff from Vertigo Software for free. So, free man. Stuff is always good. Absolutely. So we, we have an incredible show this week, don't we? Absolutely. I, I can't contain my excitement. <laughs> Well, all right. <laughs> I'm on the edge of my seat, man. <laughs> oh, now I'm excited. See what happens? It rubs off on people. Yeah. Well, we had uh, Bill Vaughn on on the show very early on uh, last year, and uh, we just ran out of time. And now Bill is back, and he's on the line. Bill, are you there? How are you? I'm just fine. Bill, good to have you on again. Thank you. We, as I remember, uh, if, if I recollect correctly, we uh, had some unfinished things we wanted to talk about before, and um, you have lots of new things to talk about because you've been around the world recently and uh, heard some things through the grapevine you want to share with us? 
Well, I just came back from London, um, and I was at the Dev Week conference there, which was uh, generally successful. Uh, we heard a number of stories about economic downturn there, too, and how it's affecting things. And we asked them how many people are doing .NET development, mm-hmm. and the number was, in my opinion, lower than I would have expected even over there. Wow. Um, the VS Live stuff that we saw the week before that, that was VS Live San Francisco in uh, mid-February. Uh, the number of people doing uh, .NET seemed to be low as well. Wow. And uh, I was attributing this to economic times and uh, partly due to messaging. Um, yeah, well, we've... I we've, think the messaging is still kind of confused. We've uh, beaten that topic to death, that's for sure. Yeah, we still hear web services all the time. I'm seeing the same thing every time um, somebody gets up on the podium and does a keynote. They say web, they say uh, .net, and the next thing that comes out of their mouth is web services, and it's uh, it makes the developers think that the only really interesting thing in the in the product is web services. And as you know, there's a lot of cool stuff there. There's a lot of really cool stuff that uh, solves problems that people have been complaining about for. As long as, you know, as we've had VB, you know, they kept Before coming that. up to us and say, you've got to get rid of COM. You've got to get rid of, you've got to give us the ability to do Xcopy compiles and Xcopy uh, installs and simplify this stuff. And they gave it to them, and, but that's not what they're talking about. They're talking about XML and XML to do everything. Right. And uh, ironically, one of the slowest parts of .NET web services. Is XML. Yeah. Yeah, and it's um, people say you know that I've, the tests I've done don't don't seem to hold up. Uh, is there? It's got to be a better way. And I says, well, if you look at remoting, I says, what's well, what's remoting? Right. And then yeah. we have to go back and says, well, you know, there's a number of sessions here on remoting. And he says, well, I didn't know what that was. I didn't know why. Why would I do that? Why would it be interesting that? Right. So there's so much emphasis on XML, on SOAP, and on web services. Bill. Another perception is that remoting is hard. Right. You know, what, what's that all about? Well, I think it's also that anything that's, that's, that you don't understand is going to be hard initially. Um, I think I can understand why people think it's hard. It's because it relies heavily on configuration files, which are abysmal. And, uh, and I just mean that because there isn't a lot of help. There aren't a lot of samples. There aren't a lot of, you know, sample configuration uh, settings. And that makes things hard. And, and that makes I things agree. hard. You know, they're... Yeah. Uh, they're case sensitive and uh, very particular about everything. Little space is missing, you're screwed. You know. Well, that's just so sad. Ingo's book, and you know that that kind of clears it all up. What's that, Mark? Ingo Rammer's book. Yep. I just tell students to buy that book and take a look at it. And yeah. That'll clear it right up. Even his book, though, you know, seems to stick to console application demos which not anybody that I know is in business software uses console applications. Oh, yeah, all the time. Yeah. What? Yeah. <laughs> well, maybe in a 370 time frame, IBM 370. That's good for scripting, you know, but uh, yeah. generally people use DLLs. I've heard of those. Yeah. Well, uh, it's interesting you brought that up, Bill, because I was just today um, developing a sockets interface with a uh, freeware zip compression and other compression format library written in C-sharp, so it's a completely managed code library that's freeware, and uh, taking a data set, creating a memory stream, and then creating a a compression stream from that memory stream using write.xml to write a data set XML into that stream, compressed, about 75% compressed, send it over through a socket server to a client, decompress it on the client and you've got a you know basic uh way to get data sets around in a much more efficient way even than more efficient than remoting i was really impressed by the performance of this thing too on my little laptop it uh, compressed about 100k in 27 milliseconds wow which was pretty good wow good enough for getting it around and that library is a free one isn't that carl yeah we got a link uh up on the website for the show to that library so that's up on the website now well, you know, people um, think they get what they pay for, so freeware is going to 
I can see you going into a board meeting and says, well, we've found the solution to our technical problem. It's this thing I got on the Internet. And oh, How much does it cost? Is it uh, $50,000? No, it's, <laughs> it, it's free. <laughs> and I said, right, right. <laughs> so you're saying I should uh, reverse engineer it and write my own version and charge $50,000? Is that what you're saying, Bill? How many copies do you have to sell if it costs you? If you get <laughs> oh, Microsoft, when we were, I was a PM at Microsoft, we found that there was the same sort of thing, and people um, sell the same thing for a different price, and people thought it was so much better than it was, you know, for the low price. And it's, um, so they're trying to hit both markets. They'd have a $99 version of, of VB that does basically the same thing as the, as the $600 version or the $2,000 version. Right. A couple more features here and there, but it's basically the same binaries. Yeah, do you think it's helped BizTalk uh, to price it as high as it is? For BizTalk? Yeah. No data. All right. Um, yeah. No, not a BizTalk expert, so um, um, I think there's some there's some logic to that. Remember, in the in the olden days, they didn't sell software at all; they always leased it. And you, IBM would come in and says, "Well, you're." You can have this accounts payable program, uh, and it's only uh, three thousand dollars a month. Yeah, and uh, McAfee virus scans trying to do that, and uh, it's not working very well. <laughs> yeah, those old models uh, don't seem to hold up pretty much um, because it, what it does it it stimulates the growth of other companies that have the same thing but cheaper. I I sort of think that whole software as a service message from Microsoft came just to uh, support their uh, you know, hailstorm initiative. Because um, they were trying to sell software as a service, so they said everybody should sell software as a service. Kind of like when they used the registry for com objects, they said, "Well, right. we sh- everybody should use the registry for everything." This is the back to the the, the one size fits all approach. Uh, right. We have a solution. Let's put you know apply it to all of our problems and yeah. see if it you know, see what flies. Yeah. Right. Well, Bill, are you ready to geek out on ADO.net again? Well, sure, sure. You want, to talk, you want to talk about ADO.net? I love to talk about ADO.net. Absolutely. So uh, the thing I wanted to ask you is: Is there a, an excellent pattern for handling concurrency problems that are associated with multiple clients having disconnected record sets and trying to update at the same time? Yeah, it's called design the database in the first place. Design the system in the first place that avoids the collisions. Why don't you uh, give me some examples of good design ideas in the database that would help that? Well, um, if you start out by thinking, okay, um, why would two clients try to update the same row at the same time? And you find that if you start looking at real-life situations, there are few that really fall into that category. Um, healthcare client, um, you know, you call in and, and somebody updates your 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 client on the phone, and the clerk on the on the other end of the phone is doing the work for you. Um, is someone else in the country going to be working on updating your particular records someplace else? Um, maybe, maybe not. But if once you design your systems around the the ownership of the data belongs to a particular person or particular activity. Uh, those things can be segmented. Then you can segment the data and keep everybody out of each other's hair. So only have, what you have to do then is worry about the the collision case, which is very, very rare, in which case you have a good scenario, um, seniority counts or who was ever there first, those kinds of things work better. But if right. you have an equal footing where all these clients can have access to the same data at the same time, like the airline reservation class situation, uh, it gets more complex, and you have to do a number of things like pessimistic locking and and other scary things um, to protect the data. Have you ever seen people do their own? Uh, well, of course you have. But what do you think of doing a sort of uh, transaction logging where you have? Uh, People check out records or sets of records and, and marked as such with a user ID or somebody. We've seen that before. Um, the problem is that once they're checked out, uh, well, there's a couple of approaches. Let's let's talk about the Anvil salesman approach. In this case, the rows are um, are in fact created. For example, when you insert rows. 
um, you don't insert a single row yourself. You ask for a block of rows that belong to you. So this particular client um, knows that he's going to be working on um, these uh, a set of products or a set of customers. So he checks out five new customers. I'm going to work five new customers today, so you check five out. And these belong to you, okay. the salesman. So no one's going to, to collide with you working with those because they belong to you. They're assigned to you. Um, and when you do the, use this approach, when you do an insert, um, the inserts have already been done. So you already have the identity columns. You already have the GUIDs or the, the asset, asset identity values have already been assigned. And all you're doing is doing updates. And because you own the data, you don't have to worry about collisions at all. Okay. Um, so, yeah, so you'd assign a, an ownership ID or something to the, whoever's right. using them. Yeah. Right. And this is assigned to admin clerk six or admin whatever it is. And yes, you end up with the database ends up having quite a few extra rows in it uh, that aren't really assigned to anybody. And when you run out during the day, what do you do? Well, you go get more. You get another five. Um, instead of having to try to get them one, one at a time and worrying about capturing the at sign and identity values uh, real time. Well, let's, uh, let's look at a case where maybe a company doesn't design their database real well. And you've got three or four guys that all pull the same data in a disconnected fashion. Right. So what I'm curious about is, uh, you know, I've, I've talked to students about the last-in-win strategy where you just simply overwrite someone else's data. But, you know, let's say you're dealing with pricing information, and uh, that's very dangerous. You don't want to do that. So in ADO.net, uh, I'm thinking, what is what is your your opinion about the best model for uh, for trying to to really handle letting the user know that someone else has changed it? Well, you've got a couple approaches. One thing you could do is implement a um, a server side cursor. You didn't know you could do that in ADO.net, did you? I didn't know you could do hmm. that in ADO.net. I know you can do it in ADO. Yeah, um, interesting. You sure can. Uh, you use a there's a, a lecture I just did at, in, in London on this, and an article coming up at MSDN Magazine also talks about it. Um, basically, what you do is you do a create cursor. Uh, this is supported by anybody who supports ANSI uh, SQL. So all the real databases, uh, this, of course, it, you know, it leaves JET out, but all the real databases support ANSI SQL uh, create cursor uh, technology. And you can create a server-side cursor. And what this does, it gives you the ability to leave the data on the database where it belongs so other users can, in fact, update it. And you can see their updates. You can see their changes by doing it, um, just positioning to the row. And you can see those come in. Uh, and you can compare those. Uh, you can compare the timestamp values with what you have in your current timestamp to see if the data has changed. And refetch if and find if that's necessary that and maybe you're going to have you're going to want to have some sort of a, an audit trail to show what was the what was the clerk that made this last change so you can go over to his desk and beat him up <laughs> um, or whatever is appropriate. Um, Are you doing that through a data set, Bill? Uh, you sure can do it through a data set, hmm? or just a command. Yeah. Uh, what the the query does in the application is it. Um, does a fetch next, and the fetch next says, "Give me the nth row of the of the cursor, um, the, the next one, or you can say absolute position, and it could be the, the, the physically the, the nth number." And you can lay that anywhere you want to. And what I was doing in the demos was laying these into a data set that was persisted. In other words, it wasn't throwing the rows away each time. So I had basically a, a, a mirror on the cursor. The data in the grid as displayed or in the data set was stale in the sense that it was fresh the last time I looked. And when I requery, uh, reposition to that row again, uh, I, I get fresh data. Hey, Carl here. Well, guess what? Our VBNet Masterclass was the most popular in February 2003. We taught it three times this month. Uh, a great class. If you're a VB6 developer or you have a team of VB6 developers looking to get up to speed in VB.net and you're looking for some, uh, uh, for some direction and how to navigate the speed bumps, 
definitely check out my class. It's the VB.net Masterclass. Five days, great eats, finger cramps, and uh, and all that. We're also doing a couple of one-day classes here uh, at Franklin's.net targeted for specific things. And the first one is a sockets class. If you want to get some more uh, speed out of doing remote procedure calls or remoting, web services aren't doing it for you, then uh, take control. Get right down there at the sockets layer. It's really not that much more difficult. And uh, I'll show you how to do all that. So you can get all that information and class schedules, details, uh, at www.franklins.net. Now let's get back to Bill Vaughn here on .NET Rocks. Don't you go away. Hey, this brings me to a question. It seems to me uh, it would be smart for Microsoft to put a sort of automatic timestamp on every row that we wouldn't have to add a column to get a timestamp. We could just query it. You th- you see that as something coming down the pike? No. No, it's too easy to just to put a timestamp on it. And there are situations where you don't want the overhead of a timestamp. Um, so you know, doing things for people, I'm not sure, is a good idea in that sense. Huh. You think that would add significant overhead to just make it part of every column? I mean, of every row, right? Of every row. Um, it's not going to be that much overhead, um, but it is going to be in the get in the way of, of designs where people don't want to do it. I think that the most cases people are going to want to do it. You're right. I wouldn't say add you know add an automatically add a column. I'm just saying if there was a sort of a, a, sort of a functionality in the back of behind yeah, the scenes, like yeah. a hidden column or something that we could query through some other store procedure or something. I don't know. Well, that's interesting. It may work. Well, what do you think about the optimistic concurrency uh, features in, in a data set? Well, I think that it's it, as long as you design your system so it uh, it plays into the hands of the optimistic concurrency architecture, you're going to be fine. Uh, and that has to do more with design than it does uh, implementation. Well, I was yeah. reviewing the new mock course, and the new mock course uh, talks about managing concurrency and managing collisions. And they spent all this time saying, okay, these are the six scenarios you use in case um, you get a collision. You do this just in time, or the tallest person wins, or right. the person with the most seniority wins, or in all these scenarios. And um, and I said, well, you know, you're spending an awful lot of time there. Why don't you spend more time talking about designing systems in the first place that don't don't really collide? And yeah, preventing. Preventing collisions. Yeah. Is, you know, it's like a traffic engineer worrying about Okay, where are we going to stack the bodies after the accident? <laughs> instead, instead of deciding where they're going to put a traffic light in to uh, prevent the collisions in the first place, or you know, set up a one-way through or something. Yeah. So it's. Uh, I think the optimistic concurrency model certainly can work. I think uh, the the systems I've seen where they've used pessimistic concurrency were often wrong-headed, and I and I agree with. Uh, with the guys at Microsoft, Mike Pizzo and others that uh, say, well, gee, you know, so many of the designs we saw when we did these these serious investigations and in trying to solve these people problems, they had used pessimistic locking incorrectly, and they had locked down big hunks of the database and um, f- for various reasons, or they thought they were locking this and they were really locking an index row or, or, or something like that and, and locking themselves out. So it's um, pessimistic locking, I'm not sure is... is is a universal solution either. But it does have its place, and you can do pessimistic locking with ADO.net again uh, by using a transaction. Um, with Yeah, that's an interesting idea. And it's uh, it has all the, the, uh, the, the problems with uh, traditional pessimistic locking. You've got to be able to release those rows and, and free those locks up. Um, the optimistic model, I'm convinced, uh, will work. Uh, it does all the time, uh, but works better with a better design. Where you don't have to worry about you know resolving what's going to happen, what, you know who's going to who's going to where the updates going to, are going to take place, and it cannot be, uh, in my opinion, resolved by the user. Um, you can't just throw up a dialogue that says, "Okay, this has happened. Um, what do you want to do about it?" Uh, the, the row you're working on has changed, and by the time the person figures it out, the row might have changed three more times. I give him an yeah. undo button. Yeah. Let them, let them decide whether they want to well, do it. Well, if you let the user decide, uh, then you've got, um, 
you have more you know, a more complex situation than if you just make some sort of a, a business decision. Well, then you know you may want to allow them to just refresh that row, find out what's there. And yeah, then make that's the what well, I would again. do that anyway. I would yeah. just go ahead and do that anyway. This is what's there. Uh, as soon as you detect a collision, go ahead and return hey, the uh, current. Hey, row. Bill, I've got um, situation that's come up a couple of times, and that has to do with accessing uh, remote data sets. You know how uh, when you update uh, with a data adapter, you call the update method, which is about as right. close to a black box as we get in .NET. I spent a considerable amount of time in the documentation with my classes, you know, trying to explain what's going on down there. Anyway, um, what happens is if there are errors from that, for that SQL reports, the update method sets the row error property. Right. doesn't set the column error, but that's another message. It sets the row error, and so... The, the the by reference object, the data set object comes back with that with those messages intact. So if you're accessing these remotely, you know, other than returning back the same record set through a web service or a remote call, what's this how do you do that? I mean, you know, I've I've been trying to come up with an elegant solution for this, other you know, cloning the rows array and then setting the row you know, trying to find the row. You can if you just have a row, you don't have its index into the rows collection. You know what I mean. So, have you found a solution for that little no, problem? No, and I've looked at a couple, uh, a couple, four different scenarios, um, and I was looking through David Skeppa's book, who's a, it's another real good book, um, and he had some scenarios, but it's um, it's not pretty uh, trying to return those and figuring out uh, which rows, in fact, had failed and which yeah. rows. Um, uh, and and merging them, merging them back in. I've seen, right. you know, the th the conclusion I've come to right now is that I want to remove the rows that are in my current uh, data table and replace them with the rows that come back, which you know is ugly. Yeah, it's really <laughs> ugly, but um, it works. You know. So are you using some kind of loop that you just go through and see which ones are an error? Yeah, exactly. Remove them and then sync it up with the other data set. You should be able to filter out uh, the error rows. You can do um, that. But the thing is, is once you have the row, you have it in a separate data set or a separate table or a separate array of rows that come back, you know. And uh, then how do you, you know, you'd have to go through and set the row error. But there are other things in there that you might want to keep as well. And just going through and setting property to property for all those rows is just really ugly. Well, I think the whole update scenario is, is challenged this time. Um, I'm not sure it's, it's much better in, in ADO Classic, but... The, the the fact that you have to submit everything around trip at a time uh, is is a problem for me. Uh, I think it should be more sophisticated in the sense that you submit you know ten twelve batch you know ten twelve updates at a time and have it uh, integrate the error handling in the in the result set that comes back. So you're basically saying do your own update method. Uh, basically saying doing your own updates, right? Yeah, I've I've seen that done There's as well. A, a um, wasn't a white paper. It was a what they call one of those bug reports that comes out, a knowledge base article that right. I just saw on the RDA list. Did you see that? Yeah, I have it right in front of me actually about the uh, error messages. In yeah, a they, in a apparently the method. author seems to think there's a new method on the data adapter called update command. <laughs> yeah, right. Which I thought was interesting. That's right. By using the update command method of yes. SQL adapter. <laughs> and he repeats that three or four times in the thing. <laughs> that's that's fine and. In the when we were documenting uh, in the help team, we were documenting the difference between the difference between methods and properties. It was so gray. Uh, what is a method? What is a property? And generally, a property is something that you set that, well, that doesn't sign. return anything, and a method <laughs> is something that you that you invoke and then return something. Yeah, and it has gives into arguments. Ar 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 but it's an interesting <laughs> approach. He is, he says that okay. In order to get the update to work with a stored procedure that does a raise error, you're going to have to use the uh, the data reader and pull back the individual results that's to come back from that. I thought I that thought was, was a crazy. Was, uh, the word "crazy" came to mind to me too. Yeah, um, Looney Tunes came to mind, uh, but bonkers, nuts, yeah, crackers. Yeah, that's, um, unrealistic came to mind. Yeah, yeah, not living in a dream world. So it's. Um, <laughs> The question is, do you want to do use a razor in your stored procedure? And if you're going to yeah, do that, right. why don't you roll it up even tighter and have 
more robust air handling in the stir procedure itself. Sure. So it deals with the air. Uh, it could even do the d- decision about which road, which columns to take and so forth. You think it's just a matter of some, I mean, you've, you've been emblazoned by politics before. You think it's a matter of this guy's boss saying, we can't tell people not to do something. You know, don't raise an error in your stir procedure. That's not an acceptable answer. I, th- I think it may be an element of truth to that. Um, what I think is, is fundamentally flawed in the, this whole approach is the fact that we don't have uh, enough resolution on the columns uh, as far as updatability. I hear you, yeah. And I think when we get to the next generation, we're going to have to see some sort of a, okay, I'm going to read the following columns, in, but, but I'm telling you now that these four columns are read-only. And I don't want you to muck with them or even try to do anything with them. I may ask you to build a command for me, but these are read-only because I don't have permissions on them. Right. And I don't want you to try to figure it out for me whether I have permissions because that will take you all day. But I'm going to tell you this particular column or is is read-only. And so we're going to have to have some sort of column description of the, the schema coming in uh-huh. that lets me flag those. So the if it does, in fact do a command builder if they ever get that working Um, it can build an update statement that just has those columns now what ADO Classic does the approach they take is is, okay if you touch it um, it must be updatable so we're going to include it in the update statement and it Mm. generates the update statements on the fly unlike ADO.net that assumes that you're generating those update statements yeah so it's it's doing an awful lot of work for you uh, but it also requires the uh, you know, a heavy-duty uh, select statement in the first place to get enough schema to, to, to figure that out. Hmm. And the ADO.net assumes that you're going to write the, the S select yourself, and it's not necessarily very smart about it. Right. Which is good. I think it's good. You know, the lighter, the better. It gives you the full capability of of uh, creating those selects as necessary and get just what you want and nothing more. Right. Now, now, Mark and I have a question for you, which is: uh, last time you were on our show, Uh-oh. we uh, we asked about uh, creating your own data adapter. You know, uh, basically, what I meant by that was doing your own updates and in your own return. Generating, in other words, creating a data adapter that somehow uh, generates the update statements. Generates the yeah. update statements intelligently. Does the updates intelligently? Just does what the data adapter does. Right. And you said I wouldn't do that, and I said, well, why? And you said, well, I can't tell you. And then you said you'd been to a few more meetings than I had been. And I wondered, you know, is the cat out of the bag on that issue now? Um, I've seen a couple of people do that successfully. And given the time frame that we're seeing for the Whidbey release. Oh, and Whidbey is? Can we say Whidbey? If we can't, we'll edit it out. Don't worry. Okay. Uh, Whidbey is the next release of of, uh, Studio. 2004, so, so to speak. You know, when we gave dates out in the olden days, <laughs> anything anything beyond six months was infinity. <laughs> so until it's at least six months out, you can't count the dates. Um, so 2004 is as good as date as any. Um, but I'm seeing a number of people put together some very nice data adapters hmm. that do this, and they're writing custom code to do this, Question: Will that code be less useful later on? And I think right. no. It it it'll still work the same way it does, but you may be duplicating some functionality in the in the system that you wish you ha- could take advantage of, which means you have to re-engineer again. Okay. So they're working on the issue, uh, whether it's going to be you know I kind of thought that it was going to be in one one dot one. Right, um, but apparently it's not not even close. Hmm. So, um, okay, or the 2003 version of Visual Studio. There's there's virtually nothing in there of any substance. They've got one new property. That's the Hasros. Do we well, talk about Hasros last time? In ADO not, dot net, you mean? Yeah, in ADO. No, we net. didn't. Uh, we didn't talk about Hasros. No. Well, that's another interesting problem. Um, there's so much emphasis on the data reader. Which is kind of bizarre. The data reader is a very important uh, way to get data. It's, it's your lowest level. Very light. 
Yeah. The, first, the first time we've been able to get this close to DB Live or to DB Live like interface, yeah. which is good. Um, the bad part is everybody using it. You know, a lot of people are using it for everything. Um, who's it? Adam uh, Kogan? Kogan? Yeah. Australian RD? Yeah. He says never use the. He told his people never to use the uh, the data reader for anything, which is the other side of the the, the coin. Okay. But it's uh, what happens is when you use the data reader and you're in, a, in an ASP page, you're and you want to bind it to a um, to a, a grid, for yeah. example, or loose box. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's cool. Um, so you run a query with a parameter, and the first thing you want to do is say, "Gee, did any rows come back? Because if it didn't come come back, maybe I want to do something else. I want to fill the, the list box a different way, or right. I want to." Do so you're tempted to do a read and then to test to see if any rows came back. Well, right. if you've done that, you're pooched. Um, so you can't move back. Well, the problem is that the grid, the first thing it does is it do a read. All right. And you've lost the first row. You lost the first row. Right. And if you only had one row, you're doubly pushed. Because <laughs> now you have the reader says, huh? And the, the grid says, huh? Oh, don't get me started with only one row in a list box. <laughs> oh, God. Where do you move? How do you update you, the row? How do you, what do you do? <laughs> um, so in this case... Um, you're between a rock and a hard place, um, which is where George is, isn't he? Yeah, as a matter of fact, between Iraq and a hard place. Yeah. And, um, That's already been done on What Do You Know? I'm sorry. Oh, we, sorry. We can't take credit for that. Actually, he stole it from me. Um, <laughs> yeah, right. But, <laughs> You're uh, robbed. <laughs> we'll get to the humor. I saw some very interesting British humor uh, on British television on Sunday night. It was absolutely hilarious. Can we repeat it in mixed company? Uh, uh, no, it was not dirty. It was about, it was political. It was, it huh. was a, it, they roasted uh, the, the president and Tony Blair just awful. And it was the, the kinds of logic that they were using to justify the war was, it was, it was pretty funny. I don't know if you heard uh, on NPR, just as a tangent here, uh, the other night there was some British guy on, on the BBC interviewing Donald Rumsfeld. Yeah. It just made him sound like a total idiot. I mean, the questions <laughs> questions were like, "So, does anyone in America not think you're a complete ass?" <laughs> I mean, they were so just leading questions to try to get him to say what an idiot he is. You know, yeah, it was funny. They was don't come funny. off very well in in Britain. They they, they really don't. Anyway, the Hasros. Uh, what uh, Adio dot net uh, v one dot one does is it adds a new. A method, a new property. Is it a property or method? I'm not really sure anymore. Has uh, would be a property. It'd be a property uh, on the data reader that says, "Do you got anything?" Right. So what you can do now is you can say, uh, "Has rows true? Oh, there are rows. Go ahead and bind. Has right. rows false? Oh, go ahead and message box or do whatever you do. Cool. Uh, to get around this problem. The problem is that it doesn't fix anything. Yeah. So the it seems to me there should be a property on the bound controls. The the base class of the bound controls says, uh, do a read first or not. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. if you g- gave you the ability to do that, you could throw that switch in so you wouldn't lose the first row, even if you if you test it yourself. Hmm. Great. So that's, that solves uh, that problem. We're seeing that and, and bug fixes. We're seeing a number of bug fixes, uh, apparently, that are going through. Yeah, you but know, I, I noticed some weird bugs going on uh, today for the first time. Well, I swear, I have a guy in my class this week. Do you have RC3? Are you playing with that? Or? No, no, this is Visual Studio 2002. Okay. And, and I've been using it for how long now? And I yeah. haven't noticed these things. Um, and there's this guy in my class who I swear is Mr. Minutia. He's just picking out these th- these things that that I hadn't noticed and I had just passed by. Um, and not just me, I mean, a lot of people. Well, anyway, uh, one of them was that Sometimes you'll call a function and uh, doesn't put the parentheses on it around at the end of the function call. And you go and put the parentheses, it's totally happy. But sometimes it just leaves them off. And it's something I never noticed before. I have seen that. And it has to do with, uh, it seems to me, it has to do with how you hit return at the end of the line. Hmm. Um, and how you're holding your mouth at the time. <laughs> <laughs> what direction the wind is blowing. Yes, something like that. I've seen weirdness like that. Uh, it seemed to, to occur when you dimension local procedures or local variables, and you know, as opposed to a module level, hmm. uh, you know, declaration of something. 
if it were local, then, you know, if you accessed a method on it, it would put the parentheses on it. And if it were not, it, it wouldn't. It would sometimes drop them off. Wow. I think anybody who's ever written in a UI can tell you that the state machine that you have to get into and you have to build in order to be able to figure out what the user is trying to do and to, to supplement that with code is, is a tough job. I agree. It's, I, I, it's, it's amazing it works at all. Uh, <laughs> it, it is. I think it works dramatically better than we've seen in VB6, of course. Oh, anything. Yeah. Anything, yeah. And it's uh, it's a real joy to work with. The problem is that once you've used it, you can never go back to VB6. Oh, of course not. It makes it so hard to go back. But what I found is kind of tough, and I wish they'd, they'd figure this out, and I asked for this a couple of times, and I think it might go into Whidbey, I don't know. I want to be able to stick in a string and not have it try to munge it for me. And the string is a, uh, a, a, a select statement. I want to be able to paste this select statement into the code and let me break it up without having it try to add the extra quotes in the parentheses because I go back to the select statement and it blows up in the code, but it was working before. Mm-hmm. And I go back and look at it and they've, they've stuck in parentheses because they recognized a word, they decided that was a function or something. Right. And they, they dropped the parentheses or an array declaration or something. And, right, right. And they went cuckoo with that. It'd be kind of good if it worked like Word, you know, with a capitalization. You know, if you go back and correct it, it leaves it there. Right. Well, if you're looking for a good value in conferences this year, it can be found at www.devconnections.com. That's right, uh, Dev Connections, or Connections as we like to call it, is a three-part conference happening this year, uh, May 6th through 9th in New Orleans, and I'm going to be uh, hosting the VB track. We have a VB conference, a C-sharp conference, an ASP.NET conference, and a SQL conference, and if you sign up before March 24th, you can get into all of these tracks for uh, only 1200 bucks. After March 24th, to get into all three, costs you over $4,000. You can save a whole lot of money. Uh, if you want to get into an individual conference after March 24th, it's going to cost you about 1400 bucks. So... Um, there's some incredible sessions up there. They're all online. Go check it out, www.devconnections.com. And uh, if you're looking for VB or C Sharp, check out the Visual Studio Connections track. Uh, and uh, you'll be glad you did. Hey, you might win a Harley. You never know. Now let's get back to .NET Rocks with Bill Vaughn. Stick around. another thing that uh, drives me nuts, and I don't know if you've come across this in uh, visualstudio.net, just random hanging. What's that all about? Do you, have you experienced yeah, this? Yeah, I sure have. And how much RAM do you have? I have a half a gig of RAM. Oh, that's not enough. Give me a break. <laughs> I'm deadly serious. It's not enough. <laughs> no, it has nothing to do with RAM. I looked at the I'm RAM. I'm deadly serious. I, I looked had at the 512K. RAM. I have 512K. I didn't have 1974. <laughs> 512 meg, and it was hanging all the time because the garbage collector was kicking in. And when I bumped it to 768, those hangs went almost away. Wait, it's not like, you know, when you do something and then you hear the disc going, chick, 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 chick. I'm talking about hung. I'm talking about for a half an hour at a time. Oh, half an hour? That's that's tacky. Yeah, I'm talking about unrecoverable hang. (laughs) Oh, I'm not seeing that. And it seems like it's only started happening since I installed Visual Studio Final Beta 2003. Oh, don't tell me that. But, you know, then again... Well, I'm not running Final Beta. I'm running something else. I'm running RC3. I know that's not it because it happened in a class to uh, some of my students uh, on laptops. It's only happening on laptops, interestingly. Only happening on laptops. And they did not have Visual Studio 2003. And it started... You know, laptops don't have the same CPUs that we do. That, that normal desktop systems do. That's what it is. No, I'm just kidding. Well, they <laughs> don't. They, they have running around. Yeah, no, they have a, uh, they, have the a different, they have a different uh, stepping. They're, they're, it's a different step, and it probably has a different instruction set. Well, yeah, but it's still compatible, you, you would think. Well, yeah, like compatible ADO and RDO are compatible. <laughs> 
Don't give me this. I used to work for, for a chip manufacturer. Uh, we used to make compatible, in quotes, virtually compatible Z80 chips. Mm-hmm. And they had almost the same instruction set. And the, it was not that the instruction set was different. is that the, the side effects, the, the original construction set that we were modeling was bugged. So we fixed some of the bugs. Z80 clones? Yeah. See, now, if you had come to market soon enough, you could have, uh, you know, cracked open the TRS-80 clone market. <laughs> Do you know the story about the TRS-80? Because the Mostec Corporation, they're in Dallas. It supplied the parts for TRS-80. Huh. You know why they call them Trash-80s? Well, no. Tandy because Radio Shack, TRS. Well, you think. <laughs> well, they, the people at, uh, at Fort Worth that manufactured the, the TRS-80 would come over to the Mostec plant and they would take the 55-gallon drum of, of Z80s that came off the line that were rejected, <laughs> and they would pick through those, and they put them on a tester over there on their site, and they'd find the ones that would work good enough for the TRS-80. Oh, no, don't tell me that. I'm deadly serious. Oh, God. Very. We did not find this out until we got somebody at the, on the staff bought a TRS-80, and it wouldn't, he was going to bump up the RAM because they, they'd only solder on enough RAM would you buy, and you could buy a 16K one or a 32K. He bought a 16K, and he was going to bump it all the way up himself because he had cheap RAM. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He soldered the RAM on, it wouldn't work. So he put it on the Fairchild tester, and the, the CPU was default was faulty. And mm-hmm. he popped the lid on the CPU, and one of the, the, uh, the leads was not soldered on the high memory location. And he says, well, how in the hell did this get through? Where did the CPU come from? He says, well, it's not, it's not tagged. There was no tag on it that says where it was manufactured. And he looked at the, he got a microscope out and looked at the dye, and it was one of ours. Hmm. So it came from the plant. He started asking around. He says, "Well, it's a very not very well known, but over here on the line, you see the 55 gallon drum at the end of the big Fairchild tester that tests the mill spec parts and so forth. Those were dumped into that that Unreal. bin, and that's where they got they got. Uh, apparently, they came and picked them up every so often. Now, what model was that? That the were all models of the TRS-80? Yeah, that that those went in. They got the CPUs they needed to get to get it to work. And the thing is, those parts would, in fact, work, but only at, uh, uh, it, for example, they had to be work at a certain temperature. Right. They'd raise them up to a certain temperature, and they'd fail. And they'd be a perfectly good part, but right, right. just on the hairy edge of temperature. So you keep them, you don't let them get hot enough, and they work. You know, the Radio Shack is now, uh, has a policy that they're not going to ask you for your address and zip code when you buy batteries, which is right. good. It's about time, I think. It's about time. It is so nauseating. Yeah. I always give them your name and address, Carl, when I buy batteries. Thanks. That's what all that junk mail is in my <laughs> inbox. I'm sure that's it. So what the hell were we talking about? Uh, something about ADO, net, or... Something like that. Yeah. We kind of wandered Bugs, off. I think we were talking yes, about. bugs and issues and, and trying to get your... your VS.net was locking up. Visual Studio was locking up. It just started happening after a while, and it must be something I installed, but uh, I don't see it happening a lot in other places. Well, and nowadays I, you just don't know. You got so many things that are sitting. You look at the list of DLLs and Task Manager, and it's it's just an alphabet soup of things that are running back there. Right. I found that I could get rid of the problem by removing everything that was running in my Task Manager, like freaking Dell Tech Support. What the hell is that? Do I need a Tech Support program running? Yeah. So that yeah, if or, I have or a the real player virus, the uh, real. <laughs> <laughs> Good lord. No wonder it's hanging. <laughs> I have approximately 20 megs of RAM left. <laughs> that's what Bill's telling you. You need more RAM. Five, more 512 RAM. megs, I don't know. Well, that's why I'm getting that new, uh, the new IBM laptop. Yeah. It's not the A40, it's the G40. Huh. It's supposed to be coming out later this month. We're trying to build up a list of people who want one and get a, a mass purchase. I see. One gig of RAM. Uh, 2.3, 2.5 gigahertz processor, uh, water-cooled, uh, 60 pounds. That's cool. Overhead cam. Overhead uh, cam. Big screen? Know. It's a uh, 14-inch TFD. Huh. Yeah, keep me in mind. Yeah? Yeah. We'll talk. We'll talk okay. later. Can do. Well, yeah, we were talking about uh, you know some new stuff that was coming down the pike. Is there anything that, that you can uh, talk about on the show? Um, not really, uh, not without having people pound on my door. There's a lot of, uh, stuff that they're talking about in the Yukon time frame, uh, which is apparently the Whidbey time frame. 
that uh, sort procedures are now written in in uh, CLR languages, but I think that's pretty much public knowledge. Yeah, we talked about that last time, I think. And uh, I think that's interesting. Uh, actually, you can do it now, but it's uh, that's another that's another story. I'm not so sure. I, I you know that's. Like I said before, that's the first thing I want to nail down when I when I get Yukon. I, I want to find out what the story is there, what I can do, and obviously what I shouldn't do, and what I should. Right. And what? Okay, you can have a CLR language, but what is that going to cost you uh, in RAM and scalability and and extra you know processing time and just in time compiling and all that stuff in the cache and the things that are working pretty good now? Uh, how's that going to work later? Yeah. Exactly. And uh, for that reason, you know, I can see it now. You know, oh, I took all my DLLs, I moved them right into SQL Server. Yeah. Right, right. Ooh. Well, I think the bigger issue is going to be how is uh, is uh, Windows .NET Server 2003, is that what you're supposed to call it now? I think that's the official name, yeah. How so. is that going to work in situations where, uh, since it's so paranoid, about everything, everything is turned off. As opposed to leaving them on, and then you, you know, turn off as desired. This security situation is going to make it very interesting to try to get those into the hands of of ordinary people. Uh, it's going to be very interesting. Hmm. Yeah. So do you have any idea uh, why you said the same time frame as would be? Uh, I, I was at Microsoft last week and couldn't really get any sort of date for Yukon being released. I haven't either, and it's um, they're not they're not really given a, a date. It's too far out for them to know, and it's uh, as I said, anything beyond six months is infinity, as far as I'm concerned. So any date that you do hear, even if somebody makes it up, like I make up the dates all the time, um, are just hypothetical. Yeah, I was offering you know an indentured servitude agreement to get the beta, but that didn't work. <laughs> well, so I'd, sure. I'd work seven years, you know, give me the beta. I need it. <laughs> well, the NDAs we had to sign at the Yukon preview were, were five years. Um, I'm not sure what else it's all about. Um, five years from now, the Yukon is going to be little. Is going to be hardly very interesting. Um, well, we hope. I mean, I hope we're not still waiting for it then. Uh, oh, maybe <laughs> it could be. <laughs> <laughs> well, gentlemen, I am out of time. I got to head out to. Um, it is Ash Wednesday, and I have to go to mass. Okay, Bill. Well, listen, thanks for coming on the show again. It's You're a, quite welcome, gentlemen. Anytime. I'm glad we got to nail down some of those uh, issues we left hanging before, and uh, it's always good to talk to you. Come back again. Thanks, Bill. Again. You're awesome, man. Take care. Thanks. Bye. Keep rocking. Bye. Time, boy. Life is hard. Pay my taxes.